I was going to make a joke about inaugurations, but I'm not going to do it. You can just cut that part. I just felt like I needed to tell you. I'm going to leave it in there. I had that thought. Oh, man. <laughs> History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. A really long time ago this time. Not so long for me, per usual, but... Oh, I'm, I'm way the heck back. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, before we start, do we got any updates? I don't. Kind of an update? Do tell. Well, we're on episode 25, which is statistically what is going to be our half year mark, because there's only 52 episodes in a week kind of a thing. Oh. So, you know, mo- wow. most most people end up missing a week somewhere. So, True. statistically, this is probably our halfway point. And if not, our next episode is. All right. Yep. <laughs> so that's just kind of a cool, we'll go with that. cool shout out <laughs> to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I feel like we should make a promise to do something really outrageous, to f- outrageous if we hit 100. But I can't think of anything. Kylie will get a tattoo. Okay. Probably. Probably do that anyways. Don't say that. It makes it less exciting. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see where we are in a year. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I'm going first, then I take it. Yes, you are. All right. We're going to go all the way back to 200 BC. And I think this is the earliest we've ever been, right? That's a record. Woohoo. Um, And this is when Judea became part of the Seleucid Empire of Syria after King Ptolemy V. The Judea's People's Court? What? (laughs) Or the People's Court of Judea. It's a Monty Python reference. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Nope, not that. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's probably one of them. I mean, it could be, yeah. Yeah, okay. So Judea became part of the Syrian Empire, essentially, um, after King Ptolemy V of Egypt was defeated at the Battle of Panium. King Antiochus III, the Great, wowzers. Okay, King Antiochus III, the Great. Mm. No, I Um, thought you somehow (laughs) confused the third with the Great. No, (laughs) he was all of them. Okay. He wanted to conciliate his new Jewish subjects and guarantee their right to live according to their ancestral customs. Um, as well as to continue practicing their religion in the Temple of Jerusalem. But in 175 BCE, Antiochus IV, the son of Antiochus III the Great, invaded Judea at the request of the sons of Tobias, who were also known as the Tobiads, who led the Hellenizing Jewish faction in Jerusalem. So having been previously exiled from Jerusalem, they successfully lobbied Antiochus IV to recapture Jerusalem, So his army took Jerusalem by force, killing all of those who had supported Ptolemy V and plundered and sacked the temples as they went. When the second temple, which stood on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, was looted and services were stopped, Judaism was outlawed. And in 167 BCE, Antiochus ordered an altar to Zeus to be erected in the temple, which was no good. 
He also banned Brit Brit Mila. I don't know. It doesn't sound familiar to me. It means circumcision. Oh. <laughs> um, as well as Shabbat and the religious festivals. And he ordered pigs to be sacrificed at the altar of the temple. And um, pigs are a big no-no in, like, Jewish culture. So, like, you don't eat pig and you don't... So, like, sacrificing a pig at the altar was really bad. It's not kosher. That. No, definitely not kosher. <laughs> mm-hmm. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so the Jews faced two options. And those were conversion or death. Per usual for the Jewish people. Yeah, unfortunately. Not really great options. (laughs) No. So, as frequently happens when you forcibly conquer a city and outlaw the prevailing religion, the people revolted. The resistance was led by a priestly family known as the Hasmoneans. I'm probably butchering these words. I'm so sorry, these names. Yeah, probably. Hasmoneans? Or Maccabees? Um, so they were headed by Matthias, um, who was an elderly priest, and his five sons, Jokanan. At least he wasn't joking a priest. <laughs> oh, yeah. Poor God. Don't oh, do gosh. goose to a god. Oh, oh, all right. Simeon Eliezer. Eli- Eliezer? Eliezer? <laughs> mm, whatever. <laughs> One of those. That he next one looks really hard to pronounce. I know, right? Jonathan? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that one. Jonathan and uh, Judah. Jeez, I almost missed that one, too. Only Judah comes back around, so we're good. Uh, <laughs> so they collectively led a rebellion against Antiochus, and it started with Matthias killing first a Jew who wanted to comply with Antiochus's order to sacrifice to Zeus, um, and then a Greek official who was to enforce the government's behest that they sacrifice pigs in the altar to Zeus. So when Matthias died in 166 BC, his son Judah, who was known as Judah Maccabee, meaning the hammer, hence the name the Maccabees to refer to the clan, because Matthias, Judah, beca- Judah becomes like the important one, kind of. So Judah, t- Judah took the helm of the family, and within two years, the Jews had successfully driven the Syrians out of Jerusalem, relying largely on guerrilla war- warfare tactics, and Judah called on his followers to cleanse the second temple, rebuild its altar, and light its menorah, the gold candelabrum whose seven branches represented knowledge and creation and were meant to be kept burning every night. So according to the Talmud, one of Judaism's most central texts on what would be considered November 21st, Judah Maccabee and the other Jews who took part in the rededication of the Second Temple witnessed what they believed to be a miracle. Even though there was only enough untainted olive oil to keep the menorah's candles burning for a single day, the flames continued flickering for eight nights, leaving them time to find a fresh supply. Weird. I wonder where I've heard that before. (laughs) So this wondrous event inspired the Jewish Jewish sages to proclaim a yearly eight-day festival, Hanukkah, starting on the 25th day of Kislev, according to the Hebrew calendar, which may occur at any time from late November to late December in the Gregorian calendar, yeah. which is why Hanukkah moves around so much. Yeah. 
Uh, also, this year it pretty much falls on like the exact same time as Christmas, and like so does Kwanzaa. And like, oh wow, they're all they're all aligning. <laughs> yeah, I was talking about it with a coworker at work because yeah, he celebrates Hanukkah, and he was like, yeah, this year Hanukkah is on like the it's like on the twenty second or something is when it starts, so it's like for the whole Christmas week. Oh wow, and, and then. Uh, Kwanzaa is also starting somewhere near there, and then there was some <laughs> other holiday that he like religious ceremony that he mentioned that was also falling on like <laughs> the Christmas time, and it's like wow, wow, we all got together this year. And then there's candle nights. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although histori- so historians debate the causes and outcomes of the war in which Judah Maccabee and his followers defeated the Syrian armies of Antiochus. There's no doubt that Hanukkah evokes stirring images of Jewish valor against overwhelming odds. Themes of the holiday include the refusal to submit to the religious demands of an empire practicing idolatry, the struggle against total assimilation into Greek culture, and the loss of Jewish identity, as well as the fight for Jewish political autonomy and self-determination. And today, the holiday reminds Jews to rededicate themselves to keeping alive the flame of Jewish religion, culture, and peoplehood so that it may be passed on to the next generation. So one thing that really interested me is that, according to Jewish custom, Hanukkah is considered a minor Jewish festival. But today, Hanukkah is probably, if not the best known, one of the best known Jewish holidays, at least in the United States. Yeah, it's like that in Yom Yom Kippur and Passover. Yeah. Yeah. So although the practice of lighting the menorah was common throughout much of the 19th century, North American Jews tended to neglect most of the other traditions and practices associated with the holiday. By the 1920s, however, Jews increasingly added gift-giving to their Hanukkah celebrations, which promoted some people to refer to Hanukkah as Jewish Christmas. So despite its importance to North American Jews since the 1920s, it would be incorrect to regard it as an imitation of Christmas with an emphasis on the exchange of presents, Rather, they use this holiday as a celebration of family, reinforcing Jewish identity in a place whose population may be overwhelmingly Christian, but in which the Jews feel at home. Hanukkah, therefore, is a means for North American Jews to feel a kinship with their neighbors while simultaneously asserting their Jewish distinctiveness. Also, Christmas is definitely a copy of Hanukkah because the timelines, Hanukkah happened way before. True. Like, yeah. Periodic, like... Although I don't know when, like, the original, like, Yule celebrations happened, like the pagan Yule, because that's kind of what Christmas was a little bit based on, like, the celebration-wise. Yeah, I think I think we'd have to look into more, like, in-depth about when those sort of traditions really arose. Yeah. I, I feel like Judaism is older, yeah. but it it's also possible it's not. Anyway... Okay, so I'm going to break down the Hebrew Bible, which is also called the Tanakh, which is the canonical collection of Hebrew scriptures. They are almost exclusively in biblical Hebrew, um, except for some biblical Aramaic passages um, in specific books, specifically Daniel and Ezra. Um, And it's a source of the Christian Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Additionally, there is the Torah, which can mean either... The first five books of the Hebrew Bible, which is the written Torah, or it can mean the totality of Jewish teaching, culture, and practice, whether derived from biblical texts or later rabbinic writings, which is the oral Torah. And I only knew that first bit. I thought the Torah was the first five books of the Old Testament. 
I did not know that Torah also refers to like the larger writings of those and about them. So I mean, I feel like you can be excused for that because I wouldn't expect something that means like five chapters to also mean the entirety of everything. Fair. <laughs> but no, that's cool to know. Yeah, I had no idea. So that's, yeah, I, that's I, pretty I didn't neat. know that either. Yeah. Um, so common to all of these meanings, the Torah consists of the origin of Jewish peoplehood, their call into being by God, their trials and tribulations, and their covenant with their God, which involves following a way of life embodied in a set of moral and religious obligations and civil laws. So the Tanakh is broken into 24 books for the Hebrew Bible, while the translations divide pretty much into the same, the same material into 39 for the Protestant Bible. Some Protestants use Bibles, which also include 14 additional books in a section that others are referred to as the Apocrypha, but they're not considered canonical by most denominations. This is also contrasted by the Catholic Bible, which includes seven deuterocanonical books, which are part of the Old Testament. So deuterocanonical books mean belonging to the second canon, and they're books and passages considered by the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Oriental Orthodox Churches. Oh, and the Assyrian Church of the East. That's a lot of churches. Lots of churches. Yep. Um, they're considered to be canonical books of the Old Testament, but are considered non-canonical by Protestant denominations. So there's some weird like overlap intermingling. But just because it's considered canonical by the Catholic Church doesn't mean it's necessarily part of the Apocrypha by the Protestant Church. <laughs> it gets a little fuzzy. And it isn't the same between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, as the Orthodox Church um, includes four extra passages and books that they consider canonical, but the Catholic Church does not. It's very complicated. It took me a very long time to get all this straight. <laughs> I could see. <laughs> so the story of Hanukkah is described in the books of the first and second Maccabees, and it doesn't appear in the Torah because the events that inspired the holiday um, occurred after it was written. It is, however, mentioned in the New Testament in which Jesus attends a feast of dedication, and the miracle of the one-day supply of oil miraculously lasting for eight days is described in the Talmud, committed to writing about 600 years after the events described in the book of Maccabees. So a considerable amount of time later. The Talmud is the central text of rabbinic Judaism and the primary source of Jewish, Jewish religious laws and theology. And until modern times, in nearly all Jewish communities, the Talmud was the centerpiece of Jewish cultural life, and it was foundational to all Jewish thought and aspirations and served as the guide for the daily life of Jews. Hmm. So that's kind of where like the like cultural laws and all of that stuff kind of are discussed and, like, set down. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that doesn't come strictly from the Bible. A lot of that's the, like, rabbinic um, theologians writing their thoughts that have then become... Scripture. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so the entire Talmud contains the teachings and opinions of thousands of rabbis dating from before the Common Era through the 5th century. And they're on a variety of subjects, including religious law, Jewish ethics, philosophy, customs, history, and folklore, um, and many others. Those are just, like, the highlights. <laughs> so some modern historians offer a radically different interpretation of the Hanukkah tale. In their view, Jerusalem under Antioch IV had erupted into civil war between two camps of Jews, those who had assimilated into the dominant culture that surrounded them, 
adopting the Greek and Syrian customs, and those who were determined to impose the Hasmonean dynasty, which was led by Judah Maccabee's brothers and his descendants, and it was a wrestling of control for the land of Israel under the Seleucids, and maintaining an independent Jewish kingdom for more than a century. So it was like an internal civil war, kind of, more so than the miracle of the um, oil. The oil. <clears throat> yeah. So Jewish scholars have discussed that the first Hanukkah may have been a belated celebration of Sukkot, which the Jews had not had the chance to observe during the Maccabean Revolt. As one of the Jewish religion's most important holidays, Sukkot consists of seven days of feasting, prayer, and festivities. So it's pretty similar to Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. So it's very possible that the Hanukkah celebration kind of unfolded from that belated celebration of this. Okay. That I don't want to say the name again because I'm pretty sure I'm saying it wrong. So what do Jewish people do for Hanukkah? The holiday revolves around the kindling of a nine-branch menorah, which is known in Hebrew as the Hanukkah. Yeah, sure. Just continue. Yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of mispronunciation in this one, oh, yeah. I believe. On each of the holidays, eight nights, another candle is added to the menorah after sundown. The ninth candle, called the shamash, or the helper, is used to light the others. Jews typically recite blessings during this ritual, ritual and display the menorah prominently in a window as a reminder to others of the miracle that inspired the holiday. And when I lived in Brighton, do you remember on Route 9, there was a house that had a giant wooden menorah on their lawn? Not had. It is always up. It's year-round. Year round, and it's giant. And I remember every time I drove past it going, I like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that's, that's a, people leave their Christmas decorations up all the time. So it's only fair that people leave their Hanukkah decorations up all the time too year round year round yeah it's have your pride it's like on it's like right on top of their fence post yeah so it's like not just like a big thing it's a big thing on top of a fence yeah and it's <laughs> it's definitely like just on it, just on their property like, i love it. <laughs> it it is very noticeable yes i like it it's a great landmark yeah and i, I think it's Got light bulbs now, so when it actually is oh, I haven't on been past recently. Yeah. Well, when it actually like is it. Hanukkah, they do light them. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. That's wonderful. Okay, so in another allusion to the Hanukkah miracle, traditional Hanukkah foods are fried in oil, hence the oil blasting thing. Um, potato pancakes, known as latkes, lot lot. You said it right the first time. Latkes. Yep. Okay. Or latka. I latka, think. whatever. <laughs> and jam-filled donuts that I'm not even going to try and pronounce are. I want to see it. <laughs> I don't know where you are. Sufkaniat. I mean, that's, that was pretty Sufkaniat? good for your first shot. Sure. Yeah, I wouldn't say it differently. Um, they are particularly popular in many Jewish households. Other Hanukkah customs include playing with four-sided spinning tops called dreidels and exchanging of gifts. And many families exchange gifts each night, such as books or games, and Hanukkah gelt, which means Hanukkah money, is often given to children. And the amount is usually in small coins, although a lot of the time uh, grandparents or relatives might give larger sums. I like to think of it as bribery. <laughs> which grandparent do you love best? Mm. <laughs> the one who gave you more gelt. <laughs> so the tradition of giving 
Um, Hanukkah guilt dates back to a long-standing Eastern European custom of children presenting their teachers with a small sum of money at this time of year as a token of gratitude. That's nice. Yeah. Kind of like the apple on the desk, just money. Which is way nicer. Which is definitely better, yeah. In recent decades, mostly in North America, Hanukkah has exploded into a major commercial phenomenon, largely because it falls near or overlaps with Christmas. From a religious perspective, however, it remains a relatively minor holiday that places no restrictions on working, attending school, or other activities, although some Jews will leave work early to light the candles at nightfall, and some Israeli schools close for the second, um, from the second day for the whole week. Um, so, specifically, like, in Israel, yeah. they, a lot of people do that, um, but it's... There are no, like, working restrictions, whereas a lot of, like, the major Jewish holidays have you can't work, you can't mm-hmm. do certain things. And, like, on Sunday, um, on Sunday, Jews can't handle money or do pretty much anything. Like, you can't do anything considered work. So the fact that this holiday doesn't include restrictions like that definitely indicates that it's... Was it Sundays or Saturdays? Oh, is I thought it? it was Saturdays. I'm Every week, kidding. religious Jews observe the Sabbath, the Jewish holy day, and keep its laws and customs. The Sabbath begins at nightfall on Saturday and lasts until nightfall on Sunday. Nope, read that wrong. The Sabbath begins at nightfall on Friday and lasts until nightfall on Saturday. Mm-hmm. I'm really tired. I tried to fix it to, to meet my own preferences. Mm-hmm. I see how it is. <laughs> Whoopsies. <laughs> I was wrong. The Sabbath for Jews is Saturday. So that's the background for Hanukkah. I thought it might be nice to take a look at a non-Christian holiday since we're quickly approaching the traditionally Christmas season. Yep. Also, and as I recently discovered, I am 30% Ashkenazi Jew. Yep. Woo! Hello, DNA tests. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Origi- ancestry originating from Moldova. Yes. But that was a re even longer ago than this, probably. <laughs> I, it doesn't give time frames. That is, that's true. I just, I saw... I got back my DNA test, and there were a lot of percentages that had Ashkenazi written next to it, enough that it all accumulated to, like, 32% or something like that. Yeah. And I was like, all right, cool. It was something that I had absolutely no idea yeah, was in my background. Moldova, and then into Romania, yep. and then up to Germany, and then down to Spain, and yep. then up to France, and then, hey back to the U.S. And then on to the U.S., yeah, and... Since I'm female, I can only trace my mother's line, so I have no idea if I'm even more, if my dad's line has any in there. Yeah. Who knows? Although, I'm pretty sure they're just, like, flat British. Bickford is a very... You were pretty sure about the French history. That's true. And that was quickly disproven, so... All right, well, who knows? My brother did do a test, so eventually I'll get him to show me his results and we can compile our DNA profile. And the government will complete the clones of all of your family. I'm too tired to care. (laughs) (laughs) So my topic is oddly also about religion in a way. Oh, okay. That was unintentional. (laughs) Yeah. As we've mentioned before, we don't generally tell each other our topics. We just tell them what year and try and stay away from it when we pick our topics. And then we fingers crossed that we don't somehow get our lines crossed. Yep. So this week, I'm getting a little bit topical as we're taking our time machine to the Ukraine on November 24th of 1993. Oh, okay. So we are, like, pretty, pretty close to the present. Yes. Nice. And uh, that's about all we get to do because, oops, the world just ended. Wait, what? 
Yeah, really sucks to find out that I died before I was even a year old. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. We, Wait, had, no. we, we had so many plans for next year. Jeez, It's yeah. too bad it's all over. I know. So much for getting married, I guess. So much for our entire relationship. Yeah, and this it podcast, never happened. Sorry, guys. I guess this podcast doesn't exist. Weird. Huh. Well, obviously the world did not end. <laughs> but two people thought it would. I'm relieved that it didn't. Yep. This was Yuri Krivnavagov and Marina Svigun from the Ukraine. All right. Those y- are definitely very Ukrainian names. So. Yes. <laughs> uh, Yuri was part of the KGB during the Soviet Union, and as it fell, he felt he needed to continue his work as a cybernetics engineer. Interesting. Yep. That's okay. kind of caught my attention a little bit as well. Uh, <laughs> taking his equipment and his drugs with him. Wait, drugs? <laughs> Uh, Yuri was also a master of psychological pressure and hypnotism. Uh, oh. Yes. Okay. okay. So, An interesting pastime hobby he had. Uh, it wasn't a pastime. That was his job in the KGB. Uh, oh, dear. Yep. Oh, dear. So Marina was a journalist and a young leader of a communist party. She met Yuri in 1990 during one of his lectures, which was likely an experiment in hypnotism for him. Fun. He regularly held lectures for the young and distraught who are struggling to keep up with the crumbling USSR and its widespread economic effects. She was 30 at the time, and he was 45. Okay. Marina was also a little bit promiscuous. Uh Uh-oh. She'd already been divorced once and had two abortions, and during the time that she had started spending with Yuri, she got a third. Oh? Yep. During her last abortion, something had gone wrong, and she slipped into a coma. Oops. Yep. When she came out of the coma, she was suffering from hallucinations. Oh, boy. Which, when Yuri learned this, he claimed that her soul had left her body, and the hallucinations were the universal spirit using her body as a vessel. Oh, boy. So, our, this is not a happy story, like... Oh, <laughs> like boy. I'm discovering glad I just Hanukkah. talked about Hanukkah and dreidels and... Because it doesn't get Stuff. better from here. Oh, dear. All right, we switched roles because usually I'm the morbid one. Yep. So with his training, he made both her and her and his current followers completely believe that she was the universal spirit. Oh, dear God. Soon after, Yuri and Marina married and he proclaimed himself a prophet and Marina the living goddess of the new of the new community of enlightened humanity. They also called themselves Yuzmalos, combining Yuri's prophet name Yuan Swami, or Yus, with Ma from Marina, and Los from Logos, meaning the word and judgment of God. That's a lot to take in. Yep. (laughs) During the time that they ran this religious cult, they would continue to prey on those in economic hardship, getting them to sell their possessions and give money to their cause, which they would then pour into a commune that the cult would live in and collect their down-on-the-luck people and former USSR and amass their wealth and run mind-control tests on them. Oh, boy. Eventually, their numbers were reaching the thousands. Oh, no. And this convinced some not-so-poor members to join as well. Oh, no. These members would directly purchase land for the cult already attached to the commune and then give the land to Yuri and Marina to use. Yuri and Marina, however would not spend much of their time here. Mm-hmm. They constantly traveled spreading the word of their cult. Oh, boy. Sorry, religion. Mm, I think cult's <laughs> the right word for this one. Mm-hmm. When you mix religion and mind control, 
is definitely a cult. Now, hold on a moment, because a lot of people would call all religion mind control. True. I guess religion and hypnotism? I don't know. I'm give, I'll give you a very thin strand there. All right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure many atheists would call all religion that hypnotism. That is probably very true, yeah. Stop playing devil's advocate. It's not really devil's advocate. I'm just saying That's what true. they would do. According to a prosecutor involved with unraveling the mystery of this cult, the two had likely been everywhere but Greenland and the Antarctic. Oh my goodness. Yep. And just remember, they met in 1990. The end of the world thing I said happened in 93. They were busy. All of, all of this is happening in those three years. They were very busy. Yep. So the time came when they really needed to test the limits of how far their followers would go. So... Marina Devi Christos, which was her goddess name, by oh, the way. Oh, boy. You know, Marina being her name, Devi being kind of God. Oh, boy. Um, and Christos being Christ. Oh, boy. <laughs> yep. So she, so Maria Devi Christos would then go on to predict the end of the world and that it would happen on November 24th of 1993. Of course. They would end up taking their followers, which at this point amassed approximately 80,000 oh members. Holy cow. Yep. And they would walk from their commune to Kiev, Ukraine. Here they were going to meet at the Sophia Cathedral, which Yuri claimed was the closest to the heavens. Okay. They left in October, and on their way, they claimed that they drummed up the support of over 150,000 followers. Oh, boy. And that they would all be visited by the angels the day the apocalypse came. Good luck. These numbers were not substantiated. <laughs> and 80,000 seems to be the approximate total. Really strange. There were The numbers for this were fluctuating like crazy, but I found the 80,000 number most frequently. But the fluctuations were all within... A magnitude. So instead of eighty thousand, I saw a bunch of places say eight thousand, and instead of um, hundred and fifty thousand, they were saying fifteen thousand. Huh. But I don't know why it was consistently off by a magnitude, like every other place I looked. That's weird. But the one that I saw the most commonly was the eighty thousand figure. I was gonna make a joke about inaugurations, but I'm not gonna do it. We can just cut that part. <laughs> I just felt like I needed to tell you. I'm gonna leave it in there. I had that thought. Oh man. <laughs> So these 80,000 seem to cause quite a scare as they migrated. You One would think. Yep. Uh, don't know if actually all 80,000 were there or there was just 80,000 influenced. I, I think in the end it said that there was only like 1,000 people at the actual Sophia Cathedral okay. when they get there. That makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> yep. But nevertheless, 80,000 is the influence that they had. That's still a lot. So the reason it was a scare was Marina also mentioned in her prophecy as modern. Well, she's not with the prophet, which is what I wrote. She was the living goddess <laughs> um, as as modern living goddesses or prophets tend to do. They like to add mass suicide leading up to the name oh, to the day of reckoning. No. And from the articles I was able to dig up, some claimed that there is a wake of suicides that Yikes. was left in their path as they converted more people on the way to Kiev. Definitely, when you started talking about this, my first thought was, this isn't going to be like Jonestown, is it? This is gonna be, it isn't going to be like the Haley's Comet cult, is it? <laughs> yeah, a lot. that's why I mentioned a lot of modern uh, prophets like to just tack on mass suicide. Yeah, poor choices. Yep. Uh, how accurate this is, or whether it's correlation or causation, I have no idea. I couldn't find much. I mean, I was reading translated Ukrainian articles, oh, because boy. it really wasn't... <laughs> talked about too much anywhere else google translate 
No, there were articles that were already oh, translated, okay. but I was it was curious. it was like copies of newspapers from Ukraine. Yeah, talking about it is where I got most of the stuff from. Anyways, they get to Kiev around November 1st, and Yuri and Marina were aware that the authorities were waiting them uh, when they would get to the cathedral. <laughs> they were planning on praying from the 10th to the 24th, with the 24th being the apocalypse date. But with this news, they were forced to update her prediction to be November 14th. Uh-oh. Wait a second. You can't just do that. That's not how the apocalypse works. Of course they can. No! <laughs> So they were hoping to have less of a chance to get arrested with the time available being shortened. So less of a chance for the authorities to really do anything about them being there. On the 10th, their followers entered the church and began praying. Family members of those indoctrinated during the pilgrimage stood outside the church protesting, trying to convince their family members to come back and not be a part of the mass suicide. Good on them. Yep. Fortunately for those people, the prayer did not last long as the authorities arrested Yuri and Marina. Oh, good. They and their followers did fight back. Weirdly enough, it was by taking fire extinguishers and defacing relics in the cathedral with the fire extinguisher phone. Okay. Yep. Is that stuff, like, acidic enough to, like, ruin, like, a stone monument, or...? Uh, probably wasn't good for really old mm, monuments, probably. but... All right. Mm. So, Yuri and Marina sat out the apocalypse in separate <laughs> jail cells until their hearing, <laughs> along with 500 of their other arrested followers... <laughs> And their hearing had over 200 witnesses called to the stand. Oh, boy. And it ended with Marina being sentenced to five years in jail and Yuri seven. All right. Okay. Sounds light, but again, we're dealing with Ukraine. <laughs> right. And, yeah. And, like, if that chain of suicides leading up to the mass event yeah, it's not can't like they be were killing substantiated. Fair. Although, you okay. know, he was KGB and cybernetics engineer and had drugs and hallucinogenics there are some iffy 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 things (laughs) was trained in in hypnotics in psychological (sighs) suggestion yep anyways both of them were held on accounts of fraud embezzlement and corruption of minors all right (laughs) cleaning up after the sentencing was tough when they found the commune they said it was much like a prison camp All of the remaining followers were spending their days in prayer, denouncing other gods and praying for the living goddess. They were dirty and malnourished. Many suffered heavy psychological trauma from Mm. the hypnotic suggestion or the psychedelic treatments given to them by Yuri. I wonder why. Yeah. Not only were the commune affected, but also the greater area as it recovered from the suggestion of mass suicides. I mean, just the fear of hearing about it as well is kind of damaging or the people who decided to up and leave because mass suicide cult was walking through as for today i believe both yuri and marina are still alive oh marina when she got out of jail divorced yuri calling him a false prophet okay and remarried another one of the younger leaders that were in the church and claims that she never told anyone to end their lives and it was all just yuri she still runs the cult today oh boy but now under a different name called the mystic college of isis and her followers all right okay And she runs this under much more relaxed rules. That's good. They exist primarily off of farming and gardening, though Marina is not allowed to take part in the farming or gardening as they still view her as the goddess. Oh, boy. But she's not trying to get anyone to commit mass suicide. Better. So that's a plus. As far as we know. (laughs) Well. So something I found interesting when I was looking at the different names for their cult, one of them was called the Great White Brotherhood. Oh, 
Oh. It seems like this was a play by Yuri to help garner mass appeal and easily convince others to join because the Great White Brotherhood was something that already existed back in 1752. Oh. And it was a secret society then oh. called the Council of Light. Oh, okay. We're going back to secret societies. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. I made a note of that later on that I both covered secret societies and enlightened teachings in the, in the last two oh, episodes yeah, as well. Oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> so this is like a, a good streak we got going. Oh, yeah. It all comes back. Yeah. So the Council of Light, or the Great White Brotherhood, believed that they could spiritually guide other people in life and in death, and that those that could do so were enlightened and known as Masters of the Light, if living, or Ascended Masters, if dead. Ascended Masters consist of Master Jesus, Confucius, oh. Gautama Buddha, Mary Mother of Jesus, Hilarion, Enoch, Paul the Venetian, Kuan Yin, Saint Germain, and Kuthumi. So a really wide swath yeah. of people which I also caught my attention. Uh, they believe that all of these beings were once mortal and then ascended to immortality, and though their backgrounds and histories were different, are in constant cooperation to help guide those that are still mortal. I think this is something that would be very easy to get behind if you were a poor Ukrainian during the fall of the USSR with very little hope, because it's just yeah. such a big conglomeration of good feeling. Yeah, I can see that. I can also see how such a broad swath of teachings to pull from would make it easy to confuse and pervert these things to your own desires like Yuri and Marina did, yep. especially with a touch of cybernetic, psychoactive, hypnotic KGB techniques that Yuri brought to the table. <laughs> yeah, he had a special uh, something. Mm -hmm. Marina also helped because she convinced mostly women to become high-ranking officials in the cult, which oh. women were all, or generally perceived as more trustworthy than men. Oh, okay. Especially so, in high positions. All right. So, like, yeah, a woman coming to you telling you about this is, like, theoretically, more people are going to be like, oh, okay, it must be, like, legit than if a man comes. Yeah. Hmm. So, I think I'll leave out more information on the Great White Brotherhood or the Council of Light, the Masters of Light, or for a potential future episode, because there might be a lot to dig into, actually. <laughs> It sounds interesting. Yeah, uh, and it, though, I mean, at least the wiki page for it was kind of big, so oh, I'm, wow. I'm imagining that I can find a lot oh, more yeah, on probably. it. So I'll just kind of leave it at that. Oh, yeah, and the white in Great right, White Brotherhood is not racist, especially because of many of the early adopters were likely Indian, and that oh. white refers to not being black magic, but white magic. Oh, okay, yeah. So there was a, also a lot of occult talk in this whole deal, a lot of like mad, magic and mysticism and all mm -hmm. that stuff. So I feel like there's definitely a lot more to go into on this Council of Light. Oh, yeah, because when you said the great white whatever it was, immediately my, went my to immediately went KKK, and yeah. I was like, uh-oh, here we go. Yeah, so it was not that. White was referring to light. All right, that makes sense. Well, once you said the white, the light brotherhood, I was like, oh, okay, it has, like, yeah, it made sense that way. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and I, I figured this was cool to continue both our Secret Societies and Enlightened Teaching episodes. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I love that Secret Societies one. I had so much fun with that. I know, and now that I found, like, another Secret Society that I didn't know about, I'm like, ooh, I'll find some time <laughs> where I can talk about this more. Must find event. All right, so call to action? Yeah, you want to do it this time? No. Okay. <laughs> so you guys can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can find us at Patreon at HalfwitPod. And you can send us emails at HalfwitPod at gmail.com. And our website, Halfwit-History. 
Dot com. Dot com. <laughs> ah, for a second, I almost said dot org. <laughs> I'm like, that's not it. Dot uh, gov. Yes. Yes, new plan. <laughs> we should have done that. We should have gotten that. We are your government now. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, if you anyone has suggestions for upcoming topics, or I've actually already accumulated a couple that have been suggested by a friend of mine. Um, we will do all the hard work for you, but if you know of an event or something that might be of interest, send it our way. So yeah, I also want to say thank you to The Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find his link in the sa- in the show notes. Yep, that one. Yep. <laughs> I thought you were going to say in the SoundCloud, and I'm like, well, he's on SoundCloud. Yes, he is on but- <laughs> SoundCloud. You can find him in our show notes. He's a very nice guy. Yeah. And um, he makes some good music. Mm-hmm. All right, so fun facts. Okay. The funniest of the facts. Mine's kind of funny, and it continues of with, our, it does. with our topical f- suggestions. Oh, no. We're just barely outside of our 10-year range here. <laughs> so on November 22nd of 2004, mm-hmm. the Orange Revolution begins in the Ukraine. Oh, boy. Resulting from a presidential election. What presidential election? Uh, I think that was one of their major, like corruption cases. Oh, okay. I just thought it was funny that it was called the Orange Revolution. Oh, no. And it was about presidential elections in Ukraine. (laughs) Oh, God. That's like... Topical. Yep. All right. That's well, a <clears throat> that November twenty second date is going to be one day after we have three very large hearings next week. Oh boy. Well. Okay. Well, mine's less topical. It's not uh, often that a week in history type stuff ends up being very topical. That's very true. Um. Okay. Well, mine's sort of on a society, so it's sort of topical. On November 18th, 1805, 30 women met at Mrs. Silas Lee's home in Wiscasset, Maine, and organized the Female Charitable Society of Wiscasset, which was the first women's club in America. Nice. Yeah. And, and that's they, right next to where you were it growing is. up. It is. Yep. It is. It's eight minutes from my hometown. Um, they actually published a 32-page book upon their centennial. Oh, cool. I almost did this as my topic, but I had a really hard time finding anything more than, like, it existed. I kind of... So I moved on. (laughs) I kind of figured when you said that you switched topics because you couldn't find enough on it, because I was like, oh, maybe I'll surprise Kylie and I'll I'll do something like this, because there were a few, like, really big, like, feminist topics, and then I saw the one from Maine, and I'm like... Maybe I'll do this. And I also didn't see much. So when you said you didn't find much, I kind of assumed we were looking at the same thing. Yeah, I think you're right. Yep. Because I was like, this would be great. And then I'm looking at it going, I can't pull this off. Yeah. Yeah. Maine, you got to step up your record keeping. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, 30 women from Wiscasset were the first uh, women's club. (laughs) Nice. I like it. Well, I think that's going to be our show. As always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you come back next week. Bye. Yeah.